Hello, and welcome to Podcastle in the Sky, a podcast where we look at anime and compare it to other properties. Today, we are comparing Revolutionary Girl Utena, an anime that came out in the 90s, written by Chiho Saito and She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, a remake of the 80s She-Ra that aired on Netflix and recently ended its run in the spring of 2020. I'm Amber. I'm Jesse. I'm Tom. And I'm William. And I would like to quickly just do a very quick rundown of the plots of both of these shows, because they're both pretty long shows and pretty thick. Revolutionary Girl Utena is about a student named Utena Tenju, who attends a school and is attempting to become a prince to mimic the prince that seemingly saved her when she was a child. Shira, meanwhile, is about a young woman who was raised among the Hordak Horde to fight the princesses of power, whom she was taught were evil. Only when she finally goes out to confront the resistance, she discovers that, surprise, surprise, she was working for the baddies all along. And she joins the resistance and hijinks ensue. Yeah. Um, uh, actually, you know what? We, we forgot to decide on a question, but uh, I, I actually had one observation. So Shira, you can just take it completely literally, and it's fine. You can just take it as like a girl and her friends using like magic and swords and technology to fight an evil army. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to, to take the show. But revolutionary girl Utena you really cannot just watch it just on the level of plot. The plot is really not the point in Utenai. The subtext is the real level of meaning. The text is like illogical. Like what, uh, if you were just to describe it, like a tomboy fights magic duels to save her girlfriend. <laughs> it's, it's all symbols. It, it, it's not just about what the thing is on the surface. Right. Yeah, I mean, I I talked about this a little, I can't remember what episode it was, many episodes ago. Uh, we touched briefly on Kuniko Ikuhara's works, and he's, of course, the director and, like, the mastermind of Utena and uh, Yuri Kumarashi and Pendrin, Penguin Gudrum, <laughs> however you pronounce that. Mauro uh, Penguin Drum, I believe. There we go. And this is his basically house style, and there's always uh, people who watch his shows for the first time often kind of struggle, or uh, sometimes they bounce off it, and sometimes they embrace it in terms of how strange and how abstracted it is. And so there's the question of how exactly are you supposed to watch this show? And I think last time we talked about it, I compared it to symbolism, not as in the literary tool that you learned in high school, but as in the movement of symbolism that was from the 19th century to the turn of the century, and that was kind of uh, its its concepts and its principles were really kind of adopted later by postmodern literature. And I'll I just want to go into that a little bit actually because I think it is a useful way to think about how to watch these shows because there is often people come into it wanting to view it in a literal way, and that's not necessarily the most productive or the most satisfying way to watch these shows. And so 
there's different schools of symbolism, but so the it originated in France uh, in the mid 19th century, and there there is a whole manifesto of it, which I will quote here in various passages, which is that symbolism is hostile to plain meanings, declamations, false sentimentality, and matter-of-fact description. And more importantly, it's about how representations of nature, human activities, and all real-life events don't stand on their own. They are rather veiled reflections of the senses pointing to archetypal meanings through their esoteric connections, um, which is there's kind of 19th century language here with esotericism, but the point here is that when you go into, say, a realist novel or a lot of more literal television or, or in our own time, there's a degree of sort of objectivity that the story is presenting to you, right? There's obviously there's always been experimentation in forms of art, how they're told. There's been, you know, unreliable narrators go back to the very origins of the novel, but in general, you have this almost godlike remove that grants you a sort of absolute understanding of the world in which the story and the novel takes place and the literal events in it. And symbolism is basically a rejection and a reaction against that. It says that that's not the way that we perceive the world. That's not the way we experience the world. You know, how my brain interprets everything around me is not the same as Jesse's or Williams. The, the, the eyes that I see the world through are not the same as yours. Our understanding of the world is shaped through assumptions, biases, our own personal psychology, perception, right? And so symbolism, and I think this, I don't, you know, I've never been able to quite figure out the degree to which Ikuhara is directly influenced by these ideas, or if he's more into postmodern literature. Unfortunately, if you search Ikuhara symbolism, <laughs> you get you get lots of stuff, which is not what I want. but it's basically taking the idea that the world is shaped by your perception and merging it with the actual plot and action of the story in a way that defies direct literary analysis, but it shapes how the characters understand the world and what is motivating them. So, you know, something like like a famously absurd episode in Utena is the Nanami's egg episode where uh, the character of Nanami thinks she has laid an egg, right? And she spends the entire episode basically like in, in shock and horror about the fact that she may not be a human being and because she has laid an egg, right? On a literal level, it's sort of ridiculous. People don't lay eggs, of course. But it's a great example of the fact that it is heightening that character's sense of the world, their perception of the world, their alienation from their role in it, their body, sexuality, etc. And it's manifesting in the story in, in both a literal and symbolic way, right? And so you always have to be thinking on that level when you're watching something like this, because the sort of point of symbolism, and I mean, I'm more familiar with the Russian symbolism side of things, the offshoot, which is that it, it forces you and it wants you to make peace with living in a subjective space where direct, straightforward answers are not only not available, but not possible, right? And so it, it opens up a great deal of interpretive latitude, which can be both liberating and frustrating. But it's really, I think, at the core of a lot of Ikuhara's works is just making peace with living in that fluid space where reality and symbolism, perception, objectivity, subjectivity, we're all constantly intermerging with each other.
I would also say that um, in Utena, there's an interest in form a lot. Something that the series does to the point it's often criticized is it keeps repeating uh, certain structures to the episode. You know, going up the stairs, the shadow play, but a lot of these are also forms of theater, like the shadow play or the, the musical sequence or the kind of dance-like feeling to the, the build-up to the battle. There's something interrogative, I think, about our relationship with story in these endless repeatings of these stories and these ways of telling stories in the series. Most significantly to me is the question that sometimes comes up when recounting Utena's backstory. You know, is that really what this is? Is that really what's going on here? You know, this whole thing that she wants to, that she loves the prince, she wants to be the prince. Did she get something wrong here? What's breaking down in this narrative, you know? Right. And I mean, I think too, it's, I mean, all throughout Ikerhar's career, the, the repetition is something that comes up over and over and over again. And I think part of that is because he's very interested not only in stories, but structures and how stories feed into those structures, right? And so like in Otema, all of our characters are in the school environment that is shaping their desires and their objectives, right? And the repetition is sort of part of that in the sense that they, that they can't escape the structure, the repetition of the world that they've been placed in and being un- unable to sort of break out of this repetitive cycle is very much like something that comes up in his work over and over and over and over again. Well, just jumping off from the idea of the symbolism that is, I mean, the uh, Utena is just soaked in archetype, you know, and what I really like about it, even when it is seemingly ridiculous to me, I feel like the ridiculous, the ridiculousness of it comes from this idea of playing these character tropes to their absolute limit. You know, the, the, the very idea, of the, the laying the egg episode, like she's, she's just so, so ingrained with, with not knowing who she is that she legitimately fears having laid an egg, you know? And I, I see even the, the, the repetitive motifs of the, like the, the, the repetition of the mantra and the going up the stairs. It's as you say, everybody seems to be trapped in this play, playing their parts up onto their most ridiculous destruction. You know, I feel like Utena comes in and literally changes the archetype. She's a woman who wishes to be a prince. And, and so she fights these people who, who continue this ridiculous repetition, this ridiculous pantomime every day to, to win, you know, the power to revolutionize the world. But she's the only one who's actually coming in and doing anything revolutionary as they just dance in their little parts and, and continue playing without changing anything, which I guess is what the shadow puppet bits seem to be kind of alluding to that, that they always have a little, a little routine that sort of explains say the character that they're focusing on in uh, the episode or the issue that seems to be the plot point of the episode, you know, and how ridiculous it is that they keep going over the same ground that you would find in, most fantasy stories without ever really doing anything to break free, you know? 
Yeah, Amber. Um, so you you called Dana a woman, which that part I'm gonna have to disagree with because in the series they are very specific about about how old these characters are. They're specifically in middle school and. They oh. say they're in middle school, so... You know, I'm so sorry. You're absolutely right. These these are children. <laughs> right, exactly. And yeah, so, you're absolutely right. Uh, so my reading of of this series is, is about... It's about being on the cusp of adulthood. Utena is always fighting these duels, and the goal is supposed to be the power to revolutionize the world, which, if you look at it, it basically means being an adult, having the power to change the world. Because teenagers, they have so many ideas for improving the world, but zero power to do so. So it's this fantasy of adulthood as the single missing piece in their life, which is um, having the ability to actually change the world. And even later on in the series, it's shown that this is actually not enough. When she fights, there's a castle floating in the sky. But at the end, she finds out that the castle was actually just literally an illusion. It's just a projection on the sky, which basically my read of it is was that when a child reaches adulthood, it's when they find out that adulthood itself is a lie, that just being older 10 or 20 years isn't actually enough to be able to change the world like they want it. I like that read. The idea of the castle in the air that you build of what adulthood will be. Right, and I mean, I think the the thing is that they're they're reaching for an adulthood that is not actually on their terms, right? Like, this whole competition, obviously, is not created by them, but they're invested in it, again, on the belief that once once they reach adulthood or once they reach the castle, that they will be able to exert influence, and what they find is that they have been competing arguably just basically to end up back where they were. And again, this leads in, leads back to the repetition aspect where, you know, this has been going on and on and on, and it'll keep going on and on and on with the promise that you will get to a place where eventually you can make things as they want to be. And then you reach adulthood and you realize that all you did was recreate what you were told to do. And then so will people come after you and blah, 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 blah. And obviously the show is in large measure about actually for real trying to find a way to break out of those logics and break out of operating on the terms of a system that is not actually trying to lend you power, not actually trying to make you a member in the sense that you can exert influence, but simply in perpetuating its own existence. Does anybody else just just totally kind of pulling a little bit back away from the symbolistic nature, just a little bit. Does anybody else feel that the show is really Anthe's story more than anybody else's? I mean, she was basically the reason all this dueling started in the first place, right? Honestly, mm-hmm. uh, because of the ill-defined backstory about her brother being the prince, and then she's a witch who's trying to save him, and then gets betrayed by him. Something that. I wasn't actually too clear on that, but yeah, you can look at it that way. She's the prime mover of the series. I I feel like that her position as an unexpected power comes very clear at the end, especially when she you know tells someone, "You have no idea what's going on, do you?" Yeah. You know, it, it leaves us with a story 
It acknowledges that there's been a feint, that something isn't clear, though whether we piece it together, and I'm, I'm sure there's probably people listening and screaming at us right now, we're not piecing it together. Um, it's, it's not so obvious. Yeah, I just got the sense that, I mean, it's not even so much that everybody is fighting over her. It's just that I feel that so many of the episodes are about showing her submissiveness to the abuse that occurred to her from many different angles, including her own brother, and how she, at the end, broke free completely from the cycle to seemingly go find Utena, though I don't know if it's necessarily about that. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, on the surface, you know, she is like, now I'm going to go find her. And I just feel like so much of it, you know, we had to watch so much abuse towards this one character, right? And then at the very end, she was the one who got away from the fights and the, the duels and all of that. Aside from, of course, Utena, who may or may not be dead, you know, although Auntie doesn't believe she is. And usually a character that makes such a big change, you know, I, I just I don't wonder if a lot of the story is really her story of breaking out of this conventional idea of what a, a girl needs to be, because she is a traditional damsel in distress who then ends up actually being the most powerful one of everyone in this show and the one who refuses to continue playing by the rules of this show because even Utana fights a duel you know at the end and she just she's the one who chooses to end it by not playing at all anymore and to me that just tells me like that she's the one who grew the most and i really i really rather like how her arc ends that you know she was alone at the end but honestly <laughs> that was healthier for her than pretty much any other time period of the show right i mean she's probably the one that's like most tied in i mean as you said she's the one that most embodies the type of person that a lot of the characters are aspiring to be but because she has actually occupied that position she sees sort of what utena realizes later with the castle and all that which is that She's attained everything that she's told that she should, that she's understood that she should, and it's just completely hollow and unsatisfying. And there's just nothing there for her as a human. She doesn't get anything out of it. Uh, as you said, it's very abusive. And so she, on some level, is the most able to take that step back, right? Everyone else is fighting each other to get a seat at the table. And her, as someone who has been there, has said, this isn't actually worth it, right? Like, I've done everything I'm supposed to do, and this is actually not to my benefit. This was never designed to, for my benefit. It. And it's better to, you know, not be part of the system at all and be alone than basically to submit to it. So about the abusiveness that Amber mentioned. So it's all sexuality in, in the show, like uncomfortable manip or manipulative or deadly, because like I tried to think of like any healthy relationships and there's none in Utina. And also every sibling relationship almost every sibling relationship we have it has incestuous vibes almost every sibling relationship is an older brother and a younger sister or the twins but the sister is totally into the brother to an incestuous extent and the only exception 
is the relationship from the flashback with the older sister and the terminally ill younger brother. But otherwise, every um, single sibling relationship, uh, we don't actually have any same-sex sibling relationship. It's mentioned. I think Jury mentioned she has an older sister, but never actually see it. And the only siblings we see are <laughs> girls and boys. And the girls, almost all of them, they want to be romantically involved with the brother, which I'm like, I want to ask you, like, why do you think it's showing this in the show? That's a good question. I mean, beyond the creator's own stuff that he's working through, which we can, you know, put to the side, I'm sure. If we're talking about a show that's about kids, like literal kids who are trying to reach adulthood and thus are mimicking whatever it is that they consider to be what it is to gain adulthood, you know, whether it's uh, becoming the greatest duelist and winning a bride from that, even though these are all like seemingly 13, 14 year olds, right? Or otherwise, I, I don't wonder if this comes from kind of like a somewhat Freudian idea of like learning romantic relationships by mimicking what you see adults do and the first person of the opposite sex you may have any interaction with that is your age would be a sibling. This is a motif that I've been reading a lot. Okay. I've recently been going down a long hole of Japanese and Korean romance comics, right? And it comes up a lot, this idea of this, the, the doting older brother, the loving younger sister that gets to, to my eyes, very uncomfortably close degree of closeness, you know? And of course, some of this is probably fan shit, you know, like people who are like the, the boy character in particular, the brother character is probably written for a female reader to like, you know, go goo goo over a little bit. But it comes up a lot, this idea of like a little too close, you know what I mean? And I wonder if that is a motif that comes up you know, in Japanese media too, this little too close, because there are some ideations of, you know, psychotherapeutic thought of, of course, children are a little bit romantic towards their brother or their sister, because this is, this is the first close heterosexual relationship that they have. And of course, as they mature, they would look for romance elsewhere. But then again, for all I know, there was like a specific purpose in Utena to do this. That I'm, I'm trying to separate my knowledge of other Japanese media that does this trope from Utena and whether or not Utena did it specifically to mention the childish nature of attaching yourself to a sibling like this, or whether it's supposed to be more of like a look at how gross this has gotten that they're trying so hard to mimic adulthood without knowing what it's really about. I don't know which direction the show was actually going in. I feel obliged, since there was a digression about uh, other relevant contexts for incest, to bring up Richard Wagner again. Specifically, how incest is dealt with inter-ring. I won't get into it too much, but the only emotionally open and honest relationships in that four-part opera cycle are the incestuous ones. A brother and his sister, a nephew and his aunt. The other relationships, which are more proper, more culturally accepted, sanctified marriages. They're loveless, or they're manipulative, 
or they're abusive. In some way, they're toxic. It's kind of an unusual flipping of mores regarding romantic relationships to make only the unacceptable ones genuine. And while that may not have been Ikohara's intention, I do think given the uh, what's going on here, given what's going on subtextually here with the relationships, I think he might be aware that he is already leading towards more transgressive subject matter romantically. So there may be a relationship between that and the story and his use of incest. Or there may not be, but it's something that occurred to me. Okay, yeah. Honestly, I I thought that the show was just showing this because I just wanted to depict how depraved their milieu was. Like, everyone in this circle is toxic and they want to sleep with their brothers. But, okay, yeah, that's that's an interesting point, actually. Yeah, well, and I mean, we already talked about how, you know, everyone in the story is playing, playing different roles. And obviously the male characters are in large measure driven by a certain insecurity, right? And so a certain need for to exert dominance and, and power. And so they're kind of doing that on the people that are closest to them, right? It's the, again, the, the acting out roles, as Amber said, that they don't necessarily even understand, but are understood to that they're supposed to want and are supposed to act out in order to fulfill the role that they have been assigned in this system, right? And so... If you're supposed to be a secure, dominating figure, and the only people that are available to you are, you know, your siblings, then it gets exerted on them in this sort of extreme way. So we haven't covered the gender specifically in Utina yet. Uh, I mean, the the protagonist obviously is someone who specifically is dressing like a boy, even though everyone is telling her not to. But so it's it's playing with gender expression, even though in the beginning, Utina specifically says, I just want a totally normal boy. But the series itself is part of a spate of anime and manga titles in the 80s and 90s that played with gender. I mean, one one half, for example, the main character literally changes bodies, or some of these series are actually just, uh, you know, with the protagonist acting differently. Anyway, there was an essay on one half I read by this academic Susan Napier, which compares it to American cross-dressing comedies like Some Like It Hot or Tootsie, which is basically dealing with male economic anxieties about women working outside the home and changing gender roles, which which you could also read as similar to how these gender comedies, or not all comedies, but these series that play with gender are in anime. They're dealing with evolution of gender expression metaphorically. You know, with Utena, I I would say that I'm kind of into the interpretation of the playing with gender. Like, I didn't even consider comparing it to Ramna One Half, but yeah, that that's a whole series based on uh, <laughs> a boy who regularly turns into a girl. I I don't know. It's the 90s were a weird time of of trying to sort out what gender was, you know, even as, say, things like homosexuality were becoming more accepted, you know, and trying to split the two. Because, you know, you notice in Atena, she seems to kind of gender bend. And in the end, she and Anthe are clearly, like, into each other. And 
I wonder if this idea of her wanting to be a prince, that was the only way to make it work, that a girl would want to be with another girl, but only if she was a masculine girl, you know, given that it was still pretty early in the exploration of how gender and sexuality are are related or not related. Right. I mean, obviously, this is sort of like, obviously, you revolutionary girl, Hutena is aesthetically and to a certain extent thematically taking in a lot from Rose of Versailles, as we've discussed before, right? It's the, the, the influence is obvious. And in Rose of Versailles, which is, you know, it's less about, well, it's sort of stages, right? So like, obviously, Rose of Versailles, it's from the late 70s, and it's sort of the, the character, wow, I'm forgetting the name forgetting the name of the main character of Rose Versailles, how embarrassing. Uh, uh, Lady Oscar? Lady Oscar, right. Like, she is torn between, like, her ambitions and the expectations of her gender, right? And so that's sort of an emerging question in the 1970s at the time that, right, this is the, the women's liberation and all this stuff is going on in that time period. And Rose Versailles is sort of building on those questions as to whether one is, is allowed to occupy both worlds and revolutionary girl Utena is sort of you know looking 20 years forward that those questions have taken on have gone down new avenues right so like it's not merely you know can you occupy can can a woman occupy a role that was once a man's but you know what does it mean what do these concepts actually mean be a man or a woman i mean there's there's a whole literature on revolutionary girl Utena about gender performance and gender identity and i'm sure like Anyone who listens to this episode will just be like tearing their hair out and be like, ah, how do you not read the literature? Um, if anyone wants to dig in more into this aspect, like there's a huge, huge voluminous history of conversation about it, about this particular series. But Utena specifically is building on the idea, not just that there's a, a woman's and a man's world and can you occupy one or the other, but what the, the, the more fundamental question of like what those different concepts even mean. Do they limit you at all? You know, uh, how fluid are they, etc. And you see that in terms of Utena more kind of sliding between her roles and the questions of going outside the system altogether and so on. I will say that Shira, it's also, of course, dealing with gender and sexuality. And it's also arising out of a specific political moment. I mean, it's one of a series of American cartoons that, that specifically had positive images on non-traditional gender and sexuality, which is obviously coming from that point in time in the U.S. with legalization of gay marriage and the apparent inevitability of further acceptance of trans issues. So that is one specific parallel between the two series. Well, another just really giant through line through both series is the idea that the true enemy is ultimate conformity to a set of seemingly perfect ideals of, well, in Utena, of the trope that you must play, and in Shira of what it is to be uh, uh, alive. Like, Hordak Prine is the ultimate enemy, and what he wants is nothing but worlds of Hordaks and those who would attempt to become like Hordaks. 
So this idea that of, of breaking free from that conformity, whether it is by being a young woman or a, a girl who fights for a bride rather than a boy, or it's an entire planet of diversity in peoples fighting against conformity. You know, it's it seems to me anyway, both series are somewhat about like breaking free of the notions of what it is to be a person. Right. And I mean, there are uh, my understanding is that the Shira people are aware of Utena and are maybe directly inspired in some cases by Utena. So there is definitely this like lineage of shows that kind of do most famously began with Rosary Versailles and then Utena and stuff like this, where there's you know, people are, are building on each other's work in a particular space in this place, in this case, kind of gender identity and, and working on and exploring different aspects of what has been built before. So there is definitely like a history here and a connection here between all these sort of, between this artistic space. Uh, there's also a kind of relationship in terms of these being less traditional works based in something a little more, if not conventional, but well, more conventional. Obviously, Shira is a remake of the 1980s cartoon by the same name. And, you know, that cartoon obviously didn't deal with these kind of issues in the same way. It was the 1980s. And to the extent there was any queer content to that or He-Man, it was very much subtext. Whereas the precursor for Revolutionary Girl Utena is actually Sailor Moon, which Ikuhara worked on before he went on to work on Revolutionary Girl Utena. And I think I may have mentioned earlier, I don't know if I did or not, that Uten is often considered a kind of the Evangelion of magical girl anime. Well, that's particularly important with its connection to Sailor Moon, because Sailor Moon also had Hideki Anno, who created Neon Genesis Evangelion, also working on that series. And he knew Ikuhara, and he based one of the characters in his show, Kawaru, on Ikuhara and his relationship with him, which is interesting to me. But to circle back, the point is is that they're both building on an established genre, kind of a magical girl lineage, and then doing more provocative things with this form of girls' entertainment. Well, one big contrast I found between Utena and Shira is that Utena, there's lots of romantic drama over relationships, but it's the opposite in Shira. Shira has lots of relationships. But little romantic drama. There's no, there's no love triangles. There's no obsession of over like, oh, does he like me? Does she like me? And there's no backstabbing your friend over a crush. It's a, it's it's all positive depictions of female empowerment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's because they're probably emerging from different, again, as such sort of political moments. I mean, I think there's a, you know, this, uh, depending on where who the Audiences for Shira, this can be a you know plus or a minus, but you know as an adult watching it, it is sort of like relentless positivity, you know what I mean? Which is fine. There's there's a room for that, but it is very like it, it's sort of liberatory and like a we're you know yeah like explore freedom. Um, it it maybe doesn't get as much into the the messy humanity of all that, whereas. You know, I think Utena is, you know, these, you know, human relationships are just very fraught, right? Like, no matter who is having them. And, you know, I think Igrahara is much more sort of engaged in those. I mean, you can see this in 
other parts of his work, Yuriko Murashi in particular, right? There's um, another sort of theme that he likes to play with is the degree love can be both empowering and it can also be smothering and controlling, right? Like the border between that space is not always super clear cut, right? There's something, you know, the romance obviously is on some level, it's imposing your desires on another person, right? And another, and, and a healthy version of that will involve a certain degree of negotiation, but on some level you are projecting something onto something else. And Ikuhara, I think, likes to delve in to the extent to which, you know, people supporting each other and people controlling each other both can kind of exist in romantic relationships. So that's definitely, and I, you know, I think, I don't know what, I don't know what time, you know, Utena aired and stuff in terms of like the time of the day, but, you know, Shira is definitely probably a little more targeted, at least these days, towards a, a slightly younger audience. And so it has that more like enthusiastic view of the world, but which is perhaps a little less realistic, I guess. I think that's probably true because I, I also don't know when Utena aired, but I do know we're speaking very generically. One of the main reasons anime has become so popular in the West is not that it's animation for adults, but it's animation for teenagers. A lot of anime targets slightly older audiences than Western animation does. And Utena definitely feels like it's part of the same group of shows for teenagers and say, in the same sense, Neon Genesis Evangelion is. I would think that, like, Shira, the new Shira is probably aiming for a preteen set just from the themes that it follows and the fact that the only person who actively chooses evil and is not necessarily a bad guy is Katra. Everybody else has a pretty clear line in the sand of bad versus good, you know, and the abusive people that we meet either are abusive in a way that is further explained when you find out that their parent figure was abusive as well and they're processing trauma, or they are baddies straight out who were aiming for incredible power and were willing to do anything that they needed to to get there. And so, yeah, like, it, it just feels very much that it's for younger people. But also, like, I mean, like, there are instances of abusive situations in She-Ra. I just think that She-Ra makes it very clear, unlike Utena, that wraps it in romance. And romance, to me, sometimes, especially for media that is aimed at girls, sometimes media portrays an abusive situation as romantic. And I think Utena was maybe kind of even for the time period it was written, was pointing that out, that some of the stuff that was done in Utena to Anthe was like the next step from what was being fed as pure romance in other pieces of media, including Sailor Moon, <laughs> you know, like this idea of dangerous romance, of obsession being just a sign of love, while she right. brought wasn't dealing with that at all. All of their abusive characters were clearly a result of a parental abuse situation. They didn't even touch on any kind of romantic abuse. So it, I think, was is a lot clearer to show, oh, a, a grown-up that tells you that you're a piece of shit, you know, is clearly 
an abusive figure. <laughs> and honestly, you know, a lot of kids that age kind of need that message. You know, I, I came up in a situation that could sometimes be emotionally abusive like that. And honestly, having a She-Ra in my life probably would have been really validating during a lot of that time. So I feel like their their message of what is abusive and what is not, they were trying very hard to be a lot more clear in 2020, uh, in 2020 compared to like 1998 romance abuse. Yeah, like regarding the whole kids show thing, I forgot what it was like to watch a show where characters have swords and guns but never use them. Like, and like you know, X Men Wolverine never uses his claws, and GI Joe they never shoot straight. But I, I'm gonna point out something. So this Shira, this version of Shira, the setup is what struck me about it is it, it's actually pretty similar to the setup of the live action He Man movie from the I don't know eighty something I forget. But so original Shira and He Man cartoons, they were about. I mean, the conflict was because of these misshapen outsiders living in the wastelands. They're jealously trying to steal the resources of the civilized peoples. It's very cowboys and Indians. Every week, these evil outsiders have a dastardly plot, and every week, they're defeated by the heroes. And then afterwards, they dispense a moral about like not playing with matches or something but uh, anyway so <laughs> in the in the original cartoons the protagonists are dominant or at least it's an equal fight them and the villains but in the he-man movie and modern shira the villains are the dominant ones and the heroes are fighting a desperate defense because it has more dramatic potential holding out against evil it's more interesting than just every week beating up the bad guys which uh, i thought was an it, it was interesting that uh, the he-man movie and modern shira both took that route oh uh and sorry i um i have to note something that shira is a lot easier to binge than Una. Like, it has slow parts. Like, I went through the first three episodes really quick, but then it started dragging with, like, the duel of the week. If I'd watch it weekly instead of, like, all at once, it probably would not have, it would not have bugged me as much. But Shirai just went by, like, super fast. I was like, wow, I watched 10 episodes already? Wow, that was so fast. Went by a lot, a lot easier. Yeah, I think that's one of the realities of television right now. I mean, Shira goes by fast because it is designed to go by fast. It is a Netflix series. Each season was dumped a couple of episodes with the expectation that fans would watch all those episodes the day of release. Whereas, of course, Utena was a week-to-week series, and its episode count also reflected that. Yeah, I would I would say definitely Shira went quicker for me too, and. I had always, Utena had been on my list for years, you know, and I actually was surprised at how hard it was for me to watch, you know, even being relatively used to Monster of the Week type anime. It was just, a, it, there were just, you know, cycles that just took, I, I would fast forward, honestly, through all of the repetitive stuff just so that I could get to any modicum of, of plot because it was just so hard for me to like in my modern binge you know brain to have to go through the same 
motifs over and over again. And honestly, sometimes even the duels, I fast forward through them because I, I wanted to just get to the outcome so I could get the dialogue. You know, it was kind of a hard watch for me, even though I enjoyed what I was watching when, when stuff started happening again. <laughs> yeah, same for me. And like the duels are actually important in the series. Like, uh, like you said, you can fast forward it because if you're comparing it to like a shonen anime where the fighting is really important. The fight scene in Utena, it's uh, basically the characters like talking at each other, and then there's a quick clash, and then a rose falls, showing someone got beaten. There's no admiration of like move and counter move. It's like, oh no, he threw sand in her eye. Oh, she switched her sword to her left hand, or anything like that. It's just swish, swish, someone's defeated. It's about the spectacle of the fight and not the actual fight itself. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I'm glad that I finally watched it, but and see, I'm starting to see a little bit of my own biases in the media that I enjoy because, as Tom said earlier, Utena is just steeped in symbolism, which it can be really fun to kind of sort out. But a lot of that means that it, you know, especially if you want to get deeper than the surface level, rewatch is kind of necessary because you're not going to catch every piece of symbolism the first time around you're not going to catch the message the first time around so part of me does feel like watching it once and getting mostly surface level stuff while understanding some of the symbolism that was going on and some of the nature of of gender and the destructive nature of romantic relationships and the destructive nature of trying to conform to an idealized idealized image of a a trope like being a prince for instance i know for a fact that a lot of the shit probably went right over my head because i was rolling around being annoyed about having to watch utena clamister case for the 15th time you know when i first watched utena like a couple years ago it was a weekly thing it was me and a couple of people on an anime forum and every week we'd watch the show and I'd write a long thread about what I thought was going on. And I'm sure those threads would be funny now because I, I was like trying to interpret the symbolism. I was looking at it as Angel's Egg. I was getting very into the, the specifics of it every week. And that's probably the best way to watch it. Or at least it was a good way for me to watch it. Just sit with it, pick at it, what's going on, needling at its odd elements, that kind of thing. It does get repetitive, but when you have it as kind of a routine where you're just checking in on it week after week, repetition is very becoming, I think. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of why I brought up specifically that symbolist movement earlier is it's we've sort of trained ourselves to want to decode art. And obviously there is, you know, there are very legible, coherent themes in Tenno, which we've talked about at length now. Um, it's not supposed to just be, you know, nonsense played up on screen, but you part of sort of look feeling out over it that way again. The, the the importance of subjectivity and perception is freeing yourself of that need to decode relentlessly, which can be fun if you want to, but there is an element to it that it is sort of letting it wash over you and sort of absorbing its emotional truths. <laughs> I don't know. That maybe sounds a little silly, but there's a value in sort of being able to absorb the whole and not necessarily 
letting yourself get bogged down in like, oh, I, I need to know this, I need to know this, I need to know this. It's, it's creating a, a sort of sense of consciousness and a feeling. And yeah, I think, I mean, Ikrahar is such a particular style and some people just fall in love with it and I can't get enough. For some people, it's a real like hurdle and, you know, I get it. The repetition is, you know, it's repetitive. And if you, you know, watch that in a binge model, I can, I can see it just becoming exhausting, which is why it is definitely best. I think probably we can, you know, can't do it for the podcast, but to, to watch it in its intended form, which is that week to week where you get into a rhythm rather than feeling like, oh, I need to get through, I need to get through. Cause so much of Ikrahara's work and so much of, you know, the kind of symbolist work I was talking about was again, giving you the space. And obviously a binge model is the opposite of giving yourself space. You have, you're, you're trying to get to the end. You know, what surprised me about Udina was how much of it was basically a weird Italian film from the seventies. I was like, <laughs> like, I all these, like lurid colors and weird camera angles and bizarre conspiracies. And that part of it, I actually really liked. When it was about like these, this like gothic girl, rich kids relationship drama, whatever, I was like, oh, okay, whatever. Get to, get to the, the weird crap. If you like that, then you would absolutely love Rikuba Rashi, which is set in, it's set in the Suspiria school, basically, like very obvious visual nods to Suspiria, and it's about bears, lesbian bears. Exactly. Cause I was going to say that as well. It is quite, it is literally, literally the Suspiria school. Like visually, if you watch the Suspiria remake and you felt like, you know what, I wish it had more of Argento's visual style, and also I wish it was an anime with bears. Well, that's a very odd request, but uh, fortunately there's something for you. Oh my god, I, it's like, You've opened my eyes. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh my God, you're right. The, the camera angles, especially like, of course he was taking visual cues. Hello. <laughs> but I'm just noting that Utina has a lot of slapping, like Gundam. It's very soap opera or telenovela. It's characters are with like shouting and arguing, overcome by emotions. They're very melodramatic, which I found striking, but, you know, very much like those Italian 70s films. And we're bad time for a little slapping. Everybody needs to get a slap in. <laughs> Sometimes you get a little passionate. You need a little slapping. Just like Will Smith, am I right? By the, oh, time, this, oh. by the time this airs, this will be three months old. Uh, yeah, yeah. To just, just for context, we're recording this like a week after that event, and you know, we don't know anything about Will Smith's subsequent, I can only assume, ascension to uh, rule of the United States. You know, we didn't know. But, of course, we support all his endeavors as our as our sovereign lord. Well, I mean, he has indeed found the power to revolutionize the world through slapping. Um, it's true. That's is true. what I'm assuming. <laughs> I mean, if he, our, our, if he vows to bring fear to the hearts of stand-up comedians everywhere, I will absolutely vote for him. <laughs> it's not even a question. <laughs> Never before has a single group of people needed to be put into their place harder. I mean... <laughs> yes, it is indeed the professional comedians who have ruined everything in our nation. So, uh... <laughs> But uh, you you had something to say about Shira? Yes, I was going to pull back. You know, just talked about Shira for a bit because, unlike Utana, the story is pretty straightforward. 
But that doesn't mean that it is not something that I feel isn't dealing with some pretty heavy themes. And honestly, I think the biggest themes are about the nature of parenthood. There's a lot of friendship is magic going on as well. Don't get me wrong. But I just throughout the series, you had Aurora dealing with and Catra realizing that their mother figure was terribly emotionally abusive to both of them and played a favoritism war. And you contrast that with Glimmer and her mother, who her mother was not emotionally abusive, but did put a lot of pressure onto Glimmer when it came to having to perform well. And then even Bo had his parents and their desires for his own life as he, he was lying to his, his dads about being part of the resistance because his dads wanted all of their children to become academic, you know, and this idea of the pressure that adults, because they're actually trying to manipulate their children like Katra and Aurora were, or whether they are just trying to, to do well by their children, that parents have a tendency to push their kids into situations that are not where they want to be you know, and that put an enormous amount of pressure of who they should grow up to be. And I really appreciated that. And they did so in a way that wasn't like a lot of kids shows do where like the parents are completely unable to do anything. You know, it, it wasn't a bunch of kids who were fighting. Right, it's not to... that they're stupid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They weren't, they weren't like, like sitting in the background being like, you know, you should be an accountant, and I don't know how what you're doing every day as I you go off computers. to... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, um, Glimmer's parents were indeed fighting a revolution, and you later find out that her father was on a monster island for a number of years. And Bo's parents are both incredibly intelligent anthropologists who end up finding out the secrets of the planet, you know, shit like that. So, like, they aren't incapable but they are you know not quite listening to their kids and who they wish to be and of course oh crap how could i just watch the show what who who is the shadow lady what's her name again shadow lady lady shadow like their mom the one who raised them? yeah their mom the one who raised them shadow weaver shadow weaver thank you i was like it, it's definitely something having to do with what she does because that's the joke of of she-ra is like all of their names are literally based on what their powers are <laughs> um but yeah shadow weaver um and now i've forgotten my point i am so sorry um i will back off now and just say i really appreciated the idea of the different types of pressurized parenting that they address throughout the show and the trauma that it can induce, whether it's Glimmer trying to live up to her mother's example of literal self-sacrifice or Shadow Weaver, Catra trying to become truly ruthless and good at what she does in a way that Shadow Weaver always told her she couldn't be, you know? Well, regarding Shira, I have a personal issue with it, which I acknowledge not everyone will have. And it's because of its pro-monarchy message, because I live in Canada. I live under the British royal family. I don't like it. I don't support the monarchy, and I hate it when the piece of fiction is like pro-monarchy. The good king, the, the queen will save us <laughs> 
long live the princess. And it so severely bugs me every time I see it. And like uh, at one point, like Glimmer, like she's a princess. She's complaining about being a princess. It's like, I could never have friends. They only saw me as a princess. And I'm like, oh my God, no one's forcing you to be a royalty. If you don't like being a royalty, you can stop. You can put in the elections. Uh, I, I acknowledge that's a very personal complaint, but it still bothers me every time I see it. Well, it's, it's an interesting one here as well, because on the other hand, Utenat has a much more hostile reception of the idea of royalty. The prince is one of the shows, one of, if not the literal, principal villain of the series. And that constant evocation in his language is of revolution. Now, I don't think Shira is like a consciously monarchist text, and I don't think Utena is specifically trying to advocate for a political situation with the government either. But where Shira is reflexively monarchist because of the way it's set up, you could argue that Utena, in terms of its language and its positioning of its villains, is reflexively Republican. Republican in the sense of being in favor of the Republic, not in the American political sense. I'm sorry. I was like, I, I mean, I was just realizing like, oh my God, you're right. Like it's literally the princesses of power. The main fighters are all rulers of their own. <laughs> I feel like honestly, Jesse, I think that your complaint is valid, especially in American media. There is a shit ton of monarchy is best kind of stuff. You know, so I feel like it's a perfectly valid complaint that yet again, we have heroes that are princesses and particularly heroes aimed at little girls who are princesses because i mean you've got entire lines of like disney has an entire line their their little girl media is all built on top of princesses you know so it's kind of ingrained in media aimed at feminine girls is that not only is being a princess awesome it is the best way because monarchy princesses are inherently good <laughs> just for Utena, so just to pivot a little so is is anti indian she she had that bindi mark on her forehead which i assume is supposed to indicate marriage since she's the bride but if she is why is she indian like i i, I don't understand that aspect of the series Guessing it's an aesthetic choice more than anything. Yeah, I think it's probably just, you know, this is a show produced in Japan. What are likely to be ethnic minorities in Japan? I don't know what percentage of South Asians live in Japan, but there's obviously some. So why not have a South Asian character in your series? Yeah, I guess yeah, I guess Tom's right. It's it's just there because it's it's an interesting visual signifier, but I I can't really think of anything it can symbolize as far as the themes of the show. Well, there is something it does have, which is that it connects her to her brother. Her brother is obviously her brother. And her brother's obviously her brother even before the series tells you that because they look similar. Like when he's just like this shadowy figure that you only see briefly in profile, you'll notice he has the same skin tone as her. And she's the only other person with that skin tone. I find it interesting that Anthe, like just looking up her name in the original Japanese, it's supposed to be Anshi, which is South Asian name, but her brother is named Akio. Interesting choice. Right, and he specifically mentions that his name has a meaning in Japanese, like something about astronomy. I forget exactly. Like Red Star, I think, but yeah. 
yeah, the, the morning star, Lucifer. You know, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, I, I definitely have a good name. I, my name means I'm the devil. You know, I'm definitely trustworthy. I got to say, Shira has some really striking science fiction visuals during, like, the environmental shots. Like, uh, you know, there's, like, a red sunset over the fright zone, and the characters are in silhouette, or, like, Katra is in a spaceship sitting on a windowsill while outside a planet is being bombed. It's, like, straight out of French comics. It, like, reminds me of, like, stuff from the magazine Heavy Metal. Yeah, I mean, I there's a lot of pretty... It's a well-done show in terms of the... The visuals, I mean, there's a lot of well-deserved criticism of, like, Western animation recently, because uh, a lot of it is very generic or cheap or ugly. <laughs> um, part of why people gravitate towards anime in a lot of cases is because there is a greater both variety and quality of artistry, but, like, you know, I do have to hand it to Shira in terms of, you know, it, it conforms to a certain art style, but as far as the you know, thought that's put into framing and everything. There's like clearly passion was put into it that that does show in the visuals. Although it you know has crazier visuals, which I also love. Like you know, like the red sky silhouetting the dueling forest, or like red sports cars growing out of the courtyard, <laughs> or like a motorcycle jest and like a castle floating in the sky, which also was great. Yeah, I would have to say that Utena wins on the visuals. Not that She-Ra was anything to slouch at. I really enjoyed when they went off world finally and started seeing other planets, other people. But Utena was so clearly like playing with its visuals a lot more, you know? So visually more interesting than She-Ra, I think. Yeah, I mean, Ikuhara, I mean, we obviously talked about the, the Italian influence. Ikuhara is someone who's very schooled in the language of cinema and the history of cinema and art in general. And I think that that familiarity and that sophistication comes out very clearly in all his work. I mean, it's unmistakable. I'm just going to observe that Utna, like you uh, mentioned before, the characters are almost all of them in middle school. So like around 13 to 14 years old or so. Which, if you've watched a bunch of, a lot of anime before, you'll, of course, have noted that lots of anime have protagonists around that age, especially with, like, shounen anime, about, like, a bunch of kids going out to save the world. My understanding of this is that it's related to the fact that Japan has academic streaming, that kids are chosen or are placed into different academic tracks around middle school, so whether they're going to go on to university or something, it's being decided around that age. So basically, their futures, their potential futures are being laid out right around 13 years old, which ends up being expressed in their anime. You know, that's really interesting, given, I mean, if it, if if Utena is like a really fucked up fight against coming of age, you know, Shira, I mean, it's not really expressly say their said their ages, but looking up like supplementary stuff, all of them are supposed to be literally young adults, like eighteen. I think Bo is supposed to be around twenty. So this idea of coming of like because they're they're also coming of age, you know, a lot of their adult figures are either defeated or die. And I find it interesting that you've got two stories that 
focus in on coming to terms with your future and, and, and who you are going to be. And one is set where a bunch, where, where they're all around 13. And the other is they are, they are technically adults already and yet still need to grow, you know? So have we said all we wanted to say about both of these things? I think oh, so. Yeah, I mean, not probably. Well, you could say a lot about, say a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, but you could. It, it is an, it's an incredible series. It's incredible Okay, well, uh, I, I don't think we're going to do like a five-hour episode, so. Uh, no. Um, okay, well, I, I guess we'll ask the same thing we always ask at the end of every episode. Do you recommend these things ever? All right, so I definitely recommend both of them. I just recommend watching differently than I did. Shira was built for binging. You can binge it. It is really enjoyable. It is a mostly fun series that touches on some deeper stuff, but ultimately ends up in a really good place. And I really enjoyed watching it. And it's also really nice to just see a show that has a bunch of different types of representation without having, without it pointing out that representation. You know, like there are people who are clearly different gendered they're uh beyond just male and female there are people who are different sexualities beyond just heterosexual and it is never even seen as anything but what is part of this world you know nobody ever talks about it as if it's oh oh you in you have two fathers you know explain that to me you know none of that it is presented as is, and I've and, and that's really nice to see. And I like this direction that media seems to be heading overall of representation being as a matter of course. Utena, I really don't think you can binge it. I really feel like if you were going to watch more than one episode in like every three days or so, make it like no more than three, you know, because... I feel like there's a lot going on, and I know for a fact, especially as I was trying to get my watch done before before this podcast, like I I I was missing more than I should have, and and that and that that final arc, honestly, I probably will go back and watch it again because I felt that was the best part of the series. It did kind of need all of the buildup to get us emotionally invested in the final arc. But I know for a fact I missed a lot because I was trying to watch it too fast. So I heavily recommend slowing down if you watch Utena. And also don't bounce out of the series if you get to like, say, episode 10 and are like, this is not what I thought it was. <laughs> because that's how I was starting to feel. It is worth getting to the end, but maybe watch it at a much slower pace than our typical binge culture is right now. Yeah, so I agree with what you've said. I do also like both series, but I think I like Utena, Revolutionary Girl, Utena more than Shira. I can see why it's a classic. Like you said, it has, it can get pretty low, but conversely, it can get pretty high. So if we're talking about it in relation to Shira, Shira is more consistent. It's, it's very pleasant to watch. Uh, you can watch it all the way through. Watch a whole bunch all in a row, no problem. You can't do that with Utna. But when I would dislike a part, later on, I would really like a different part. So 
Utna versus Shira. Utna, for me, the lows are lower, but the highs are higher. So yeah, I'd say you can watch both of them, but if you can only watch one, and if you have the discipline not to subject yourself to binging, I would say watch Utina instead. Yeah, pretty consistent with what, I, what everyone else has said. I mean, I think Utina is correctly regarded as a classic. It's very experimental, very visually sophisticated, very rich thematically. There's just a lot to dig in there in terms of both the artistic accomplishments and you know themes that are still sort of very relevant to our current moment or any moment. And so I would absolutely recommend Utena, but as everyone said, I think there is a best way to watch it, and that is not the binge model. Shira, I think, you know, it goes down really easy. It's it's made capably. I think for me, it's like, uh, would I necessarily have watched it on my own terms? Maybe not. I mean, I think it's, it is, you know, definitely, you could tell it's intended for a younger audience. And so it's, if you are going into it, you know, expecting sort of adult entertainment, like, I, I don't think you should go into it that way. And, you know, yeah, if I had kids or something, I'd be like, oh, this might be good for them. But, you know, it's, it's not as intellectually satisfying as, like, Utena is or something. So keep that in mind, like, it is for a different a different target audience. Um, and I think you got to be clear about that. But even if it's not completely in my wheelhouse, I can see that it's, like, you know, a past project that was made with, with care and passion. So I guess what I would say is on Shira is that it's interesting that it's had this level of continuous conversation, not just from us, but from online in general. There's been like three different He-Man shows on Netflix, I think, in the past couple of months, couple of years. And it's the one that's had real staying power in that sense. But I think it's it's been borne out here. With Utana, I will say it may not be ideal first Ikuhara series. It is his most iconic series, but for some people, because of the pacing issues, it might be a little daunting. I do recommend it, but if it does sound like a much, but you still want some sense of what he's about, I'd recommend one of his more recent series, particularly either Mawaru Penguin Drum or uh, Yurikuma Arashi, which I think of his later series are closer to Utena than, say, the one he did like a year or two ago. Though, you can also just go straight to Utena, because it's wonderful. I don't recommend watching the Utena movie independent of the series. I mean, you can, and it's wonderful, but it's such a deconstruction of the show, and it moves into a different direction, and it's kind of in dialogue with it, so it's more interesting, I think, to watch with the series. And though it didn't come up here, I strongly recommend the movie once you've done the show, because it is is a release. She becomes a car. You have to see. So we have all of our episodes on our blog, Podcastle in the Sky, at WordPress.com. You can find us at Twitter, and Twitter is probably the best place to find us, at Flying Podcastle. If you like what you hear, please leave reviews. We do appreciate them. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play Music. And so for next episode... From the warm embrace of diversity and representation, we turn to Cold War nuclear holocaust. We'll be watching the 1982 techno-thriller Firefox, directed and starring Clint Eastwood, about an American fighter pilot who steals a secret Soviet stealth jet, and the Japanese anime adaptation of a Western military novel, Future War 1980X, about a 1980s Cold War scenario that goes hot. Look forward to it.